It's a big anniversary year for classical music as we honor the bicentennial of two titans of opera, Richard Wagner and Giuseppe Verdi. Verdi went so far as to write operas that promoted rebellion. Fred Plotkin joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend some of the best places to hear their music and to shed some light on the controversial legacy of Herr Wagner. He was a vegetarian. He was a Buddhist for a long time. His thinking was very unconventional. Political forces in the 20th century took quite a toll on Poland's artists and intellectuals. But for Poland, this century is starting to see a renaissance, like in Krakow. Jewish-themed hotels and restaurants, several synagogues are opening up. Traditional Polish-Jewish klezmer music every night. At the same time, Polish Catholic traditions continue strong at the Monastery of the Black Madonna. This sacred place uh, gives them the power to believe that they can recover from a serious illness. A guide to Poland, Wagner, and Verdi. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll celebrate the bicentennial of classical music greats Richard Wagner and Giuseppe Verdi with our own titan of opera appreciation, Fred Plotkin, coming up in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start out today in Poland, which has its own rich classical music heritage, plus sacred spaces, important historical sites, and a tourism industry that's eager to catch up with the other, more visited European nations. We have two guides joining us right now who are big fans of Poland, and they spend lots of time there every year. Esther Bokros is a professional tour guide based in Hungary, and she's been sharing the sights of Poland for years. And Cameron Hewitts, my senior researcher here at Rick Steves Europe. He's the co-author of my Eastern Europe guidebook, and he joins us to explain why he believes Poland should be right up there with France, Spain, and Germany as a destination on your travel radar. Cameron and Esther, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having us. Think about it. What's the population and the size of uh, Poland? Poland's about 40 million people, uh, similar population to Spain, uh, one of the larger countries in Europe. And I think you're right for for how big and culturally important it is and how diverse it is. It really gets overlooked. Esther, if you think that Poland has certain preconceptions among travelers, when they go there, how are they impressed? What, What strikes them unique about Poland? I think the hospitality of the people strikes them first of all. They are very friendly, very warm. If you're invited to their home, especially, you are treated as a king. You really are. I felt that in my last visit to Poland. It's just there's something particularly charming about the people. I find it so easy to make friends when I'm in Poland. I I can tell you 10 stories about being on the train or the airplane, sitting next to someone who might look a little gruff at first. All I have to do is say hello, and it breaks the ice instantly. They're really interested to talk and get to know me. um, Tell me one of those stories. Uh, I was on a train once going from uh, Warsaw to Krakow, a long train trip sitting in silence for quite a while, working on my computer and uh, surrounded by just Polish people. And finally, I, I just said, well, I'm going to break the ice and said, Dzień dobry, hello. And they were just so impressed that I knew how to say hello in Polish and immediately started chatting with me. When in this particular case, one of the people I talked to, it turned out her, her father was from the village that my great-grandmother came from in the middle of nowhere, two hours east of Krakow. Uh, I got to call her cousin Monika after that because uh, we figured we're probably related somehow. Uh, but we ended up having a, a great two-hour conversation. And the fun little uh, trade-off for that was Later in the trip, I accidentally spilled a little water on my keyboard. My computer uh, died, and her brother happened to work in in tech support. So she called her brother and gave me some pointers, (laughs) and I got my computer going again on that same train ride just because I'd made this new friend. And it took you to break the ice and start the conversation, and you could have missed the whole thing had you just sat there buried in your laptop or in your magazine or whatever. Exactly. And, you know, I find Polish people are really friendly, but there is a certain reserve. I think uh, a lot of people kind of harden themselves during the communist period. So you do have to break the ice, but it's so easy. It's just saying hello and smiling. They can, they can know that you're, that you're a good person to talk to. Well, let's talk about that, because uh, Poland has had a very hard 20th century. And Esther, to what degree has the richness of Polish culture suffered because of the very difficult 20th century? It has suffered a lot because many uh, writers, poets, had to immigrate to different countries just to survive, or many of them were killed. Simple as that. Many artists, musicians, composers. Either by communists or Nazis. Yes, both. If you were an educated, intellectual, cultural leader, you were seen as an enemy by both the communists and and the Nazis. Absolutely. And uh, Warsaw, for example, had a larger Jewish community before the Second World War, and many of them were very educated people, and many of them were killed. So it's quite impressive that, that Polish high culture survived at all when you consider what they went through in the 20th century. Cameron, can you 
highlight the the depth of the tragedies that Poland lived through in the 20th century? There's few countries that went through a harder time in the 20th century than Poland. And maybe you could say that about their whole history. They've got various nicknames for the country. Some people call it the God's Playground. Some people call it the Christ of the Nations for the way that it suffered and gone through terrible things over, over the course of its existence. For 200 years before the 20th century, Poland didn't even exist. It was wiped off the map of Europe, divided up by its neighboring states. It's as if people didn't want to even see it on the map. Right. And the problem with the, that Poland has is it's this giant flat country uh, with very few barriers right between Russia and Germany, the two big European militaristic powers. So for centuries, the Germans and the Russians and other groups, the Swedes and the French and so forth, would constantly be going back and forth across the middle of this flat country to get to where they were going. And when the Germans are on the rise, Poles are pushed east. And when the Russians are on the rise, Poles are pushed west. Or, I know that the Poles have had to pack up and move. How does that work uh, compared to what's going on with Germany and Russia? Uh, That's exactly right. If you look at a map of Poland over the centuries, most countries you look at a map over the centuries and a little bit changes and they add a little territory, they lose a little territory. In the case of Poland, the entire country shifts back and forth. And again, in in some periods, it actually disappeared from the map of Europe. Hmm. After World War II, the entire country of Poland basically shifted 200 miles to the west. Big chunks of what's now Ukraine used to be part of Russia and big parts of what's now Germany used to be part of Poland. And they just picked up people from Ukraine. They transplanted them to Western Poland, uh, what until that point had been Germany. And all of a sudden, you've got this new country where there's people in the, the town of uh, Wrocław, which is in the southwest of Poland, is populated mostly with people who used to live in the Ukraine uh, back when that was part of Poland. They just picked up whole communities and dropped them in the other part of the country. It's hard to fathom what they've gone through. And then, as you both mentioned, the Polish people strike anybody who visits as so warm and approachable and, you know, just positive. Uh, Esther, when you go to England and you want to meet people, you go into a pub and everybody talks and have a beer and, and you meet people when you go to a pub. In you go to Poland, what would an American traveler do to be able to actually meet some Polish people and have a nice time together? Um, probably if you go to a pirogarnia, the place where Polish people love to have one of their favorite foods, the pirogi, the stuffed dumplings. Also a little stuffed dumpling, uh, like a diner. Like a diner, it can be sweet, it can be savory, and they love it, even fried or cooked, it doesn't matter. They love to eat it in these special places which are called pirogarnia. So that's a good word to know, pirogarnia. Absolutely, and something you must try when you're in Poland. Cameron, tell me about an experience you've had in a pirogarnia. You know, this is just a great kind of a little like corner hot dog stand or kind of the local traditional food, and there's several great ones just scattered around back streets around all these cities. There's one in Warsaw that's just off the main drag that runs right through the middle of town, half block off of that main street, this cute little hole in the wall where people are just eating these really traditional uh, pierogi, these little stuffed dumplings. Probably really cheap, too. Really cheap. It's, it's, you can have a great meal for, <laughs> for 75 bucks. cents. Yeah, okay. exactly. We're exploring Poland right now on Travel with Rick Steves with two well-informed admirers of the country and its culture. Esther Pokros has been taking tour groups around Poland now for years from her home base in Hungary. And Cameron Hewitt honors his Polish-American heritage as a researcher who updates the Rick Steves Eastern Europe Guidebook every year. And he's also my co-author on that book. You know, when you sightsee in Europe, you go to a lot of churches, and most of the churches just feel empty and, and only still open because they're tourist attractions. Go to Poland, the churches are alive. They are just primarily living places of worship, and a tourist is welcome to go in. But you have the sense that the Polish people have a very strong Catholic faith. Esther, talk a little bit about the strength of the Catholic faith in Poland today and how it helped them get through their hard times in the 20th century. Polish people have been Catholic since the 9th century after Christ. So uh, ever since, it has been essential in Polish everyday living. So they, they find that it's important to follow the Catholic tradition in their everyday life. So they do go to churches. You never see a rundown church in Poland. People do maintain them because they go there. They teach their children, they educate their children to follow the Catholic traditions. So it's, for example, not accepted that young people just live together. Okay, so they have more strict religious values. They have more strict religious values. And young people are generally... They also also follow that. Probably not the latest generations, not the young people in their 20s today. But other than that, absolutely. It's important to keep the Catholic um, festivities Mm -hmm. as well. And if you go in Poland on any road, you will see lots of little shrines uh-huh. with Virgin Mary because she's the patroness of Poland. And it's always beautifully decorated. All of the shrines, that is also important. What would you say the, some big uh, pilgrimage site in Poland would be? Where you, is there a monastery or something where you can feel the power of the people's faith? Absolutely. The most important pilgrimage site is in Czestochowa. That's the name of the city. But in fact, the monastery is called Jasnagora. Czestochowa. Czestochowa. Mm-hmm. That's in Silesia. 
So that's in a very industrial area. Okay. But Yasnagora, it means Bright Mountain. That's the name of the monastery. And it was incorporated in the city of Częstochowa. And in there, Polish people must go there at least once in their lifetime. Really? Why? Because uh, it is associated with healing and special power, the Black Madonna, which is oh, in okay. there. And she's been there since the 14th century. And she's been brought there from Palestine. And she was supposed to protect the whole monastery, uh, this icon. It's an icon which is said to be painted by Luke the Evangelist himself. And it's turning darker and darker and darker over the years. She has uh, eight beautiful dresses, which is done by the nuns. The monastery is actually an active monastery uh, run by Paulist uh, monks. Mm -hmm. Paulist is, is a connection actually to my country because it is the only order which was established in Hungary. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, absolutely. And the Hungarian king sent his daughter to marry a Polish prince. And with her, the monks went to Poland. So they got to this monastery. And why it is important for Polish people? Because... This sacred place uh, gives them the power to believe that they can recover from a serious illness. They can ask for help for their families. It is a big privilege for children to have their first communion in this monastery. Priests from all over Europe go there to pray and to see the Black Madonna. You can have a guided tour all around the monastery complex. It has a fantastic treasury with uh, religious relics. It even has, for example, Lech Valencia's uh, Nobel Peace Prize. He donated it he to the monastery. To, now, there's yes. an indication of how important that is to Absolutely. modern Czech people. This is Czestochowa, C-E-S-T-O-C-H-O-W-A or, or something yes, like Chen that. Yes, Czestochowa, because in Poland, if there is a little slash uh, below the E, that's an N. Okay. Now, Cameron, when you think of your experiences as a traveler in Poland, how has the, the church sort of impacted your sightseeing? One thing I really notice in Poland, relative even to other nominally Catholic countries, is any church you go into is just absolutely jammed with people worshiping. Uh, yeah. it, it's really a living faith there. People really practice it, feel it deeply. And Pope John Paul II was from Krakow. Yeah, Pope John Paul II, Karowojtyła was his Polish name. He was the Archbishop of Krakow, um, and that's where he, he sort of made his name as someone who stood up against the Soviet regime. It's interesting that we had a pope from Poland uh, who came from a Soviet upbringing, basically. Who sort of oversaw the, the fall of the uh, communist regime. And a lot of people credit him as being one of the main inspirational figures in bringing down communism. And it's interesting, too, that uh, Catholicism is so important there compared to other communist countries. They didn't close the churches in Poland. They closed churches or converted them to other purposes in, in other countries. I, I was just in Russia, and in one town I was finding out this church was turned into a museum, this church was turned into a concert mm -hmm. hall, this one to an uh, ice hockey rink. In Poland, they didn't dare do that because they knew how important it was. They knew if they closed the churches, there's no way that the Poles would stand for it. And I understand throughout Eastern Europe, during difficult times as they were the pawns of the Soviet Union, people would join the Catholic Church, not necessarily for religious reasons, but it was a relatively safe way to show your opposition to the communist regime. And it was both, particularly in Poland. It was right. both something that people largely believed, but also, absolutely, it was a symbol of dissent against the communist regime. There's a lot more to Poland, including your calls for Esther and Cameron coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Then we'll find out about this year's big opera and classical music anniversaries with Fred Plotkin. We're at 877-333-7425. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. When it comes to places to visit in Europe, Poland is an underrated jewel. Its tourism stats are roughly one-seventh of the other big popular European destinations like Germany, Spain, and Italy. But Poland's steadily gaining its overdue share of visitors, and helping us to appreciate the attractions of Poland right now on Travel with Rick Steves are tour guide Esther Bokros, based in Hungary, and tour guide and researcher Cameron Hewitt, who co-authors the Rick Steves Eastern Europe Guidebook. What are your questions about visiting Poland? 877-333-7425 is our phone number and radio at ricksteves.com. That's the email address. Lana's on the line in Madison Heights, Michigan. Lana, thanks for your call. 
thank you for taking my call. I'm a big fan of the show. Thanks. Do you have a thought on Poland that you can share with us? Yes, I have a question, actually. Um, my husband and I will be traveling to Warsaw, and that's going to be our first time ever in Poland. We'll have about three and a half days in the city, and so I'm wondering if there's anywhere nearby outside of the city that would be worth taking a half-day or full-day trip, or if there's enough to do to keep us busy just staying in Warsaw. Good question, Esther. Let's say she's got two days to see the highlights of Warsaw and then one day for the best side trip. What would you recommend? For the best side trip, I would definitely recommend you to go to Zelazowa Wola, the birthplace of Chopin. Uh, how far away from Warsaw is that? It's about an hour and a half. Why would you go there to see the birthplace of Chopin? It's a really lovely mansion, and you can have a beautiful, intimate Chopin concert. Oh, that sounds good. Cameron, if you had two days in Warsaw, what would you do? The thing about Warsaw is it's changing so fast. I can think of five or six new museums that have just opened in the last few years, and it really just depends on your interests. If you do like Chopin, they've just recently rehabbed the Chopin Museum right there in the downtown part of uh, Warsaw. Um, there's a great museum about the Warsaw Uprising, this very brave uprising of the Polish people against the Nazi uh, rule in World War II. Give us a little context about what happened to Warsaw in World War II. Uh, Warsaw was uh, dominated by the Nazis throughout most of World War II. In fact, that's part of what kicked off World War II. And uh, near the very end of the war, the Poles knew that the Soviets were approaching. Uh, the Nazis were weakening. They decided rather than wait to be rescued by the Soviets, they wanted to chart their own course after the war. They thought they would try to take back their city on their own. They staged a dramatic uprising. They came pouring out of the sewers. They used underground sewers and, and other secret chambers to be able to move around the city. They went up, though, against a really strong Nazi uh, force, so they were put down very quickly. Hitler was so mad about it, he ordered that the city of Warsaw be destroyed, systematically block by block. So with the last of his resources before the Soviets moved in, he really took out that aggression on, on Warsaw. And there's this wonderful museum, high-tech, modern, just opened a few years ago, that tells that story really eloquently, tells the story of the people who fought in the, in the Warsaw Uprising. What's it uh, called? It's just called the Warsaw Uprising Museum. Okay. There's also a memorial right near downtown where you can see a, a, a giant statue of these brave uprisers fleeing Nazi tanks and just sort of captures the, the emotion of the time. And then there's just the beautiful, it's called the Royal Way. And honestly, the first time I went to Warsaw 10 or 12 years ago, it was a pretty dreary urban scene, but they've done a, just a gorgeous job of, of restoring it. Is that um, the boulevard, the Royal That way? main boulevard, yeah, and that it, stretches you, right through the... Do people refer to it as the boulevard or the Royal Way? There's different names for it, but it, the Royal Way is kind of the short name for it. If you it. wanted to have a munchie on the Royal Way, Esther, what would you have? Where, where would you stop and get something fun to eat just for a snack? You can uh, have a, a ponczki, which is a donut, a very typical Polish snack. It can be filled with uh, different sweet fillings. Oh, like a jelly donut or something. Yes, like, like a jelly donut. It's ponczki in Polish. Ponczki. Yes. <laughs> that sounds fun. Either with a coffee, it would be perfect. And on the Royal Way, let me recommend one thing. There is a church of the heart of Christ, and that's the church where you find the heart of Chopin. Oh, my goodness. And that's on the Royal Way as well. Lana, are you taking notes? I definitely am. <laughs> I have a full page. <laughs> Boy, it, you know, the amazing thing about Warsaw is to think that, as Cameron said, it was systematically destroyed, not just bombed, really flattened. And they've come so far in 50 or 60 years. And today it was rebuilt like so exactingly that even a crooked piece of timber would be put back up crooked. Uh, one more thought I had, Lana, about your day trip idea. There's an express train now that goes from Warsaw to Krakow in about two and a half hours, two hours, 45 minutes. That could be a long day trip. And if you haven't been to Krakow, that could be a great way to spend your extra day there in Warsaw. Wow, so you can get from Warsaw to Krakow in like two hours. By About the two, train. two and a half, two hours, 45 you minutes. Know, that's an interesting thing because all over Europe, cities that used to be not within day trip distance, Belfast and Dublin, uh, Cordoba or Sevilla and Madrid, Krakow and Warsaw, now they are. So it's important not to underestimate what we can do with the new bullet trains in Europe. Lana, thanks for your call. Have fun on your trip. I will, thanks. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Poland with two great guides who know Poland very well, Esther Bokros and Cameron Hewitt, and Pat's on the line in Elkton, Minnesota. Pat, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you for listening to me. Uh, my grandparents came from the Poznan area and was wondering if there was something special in that area that I should see. Poznan. Esther, can you give some ideas about Poznan in that area? Poznan used to be the first capital of Poland. Actually, Gniezno, it's a small town beside Poznan, that means nest in Polish. That was the first capital that the first Polish kings established. So the first territory uh, was, was really small comparing to the present one, and then they moved the capital to Poznan. So you can see the first capital of Poland, absolutely. The old town is beautifully restored. You can see the fantastic Renaissance town hall, beautiful Baroque Renaissance uh, merchant houses around it. 
and it has a fantastic Jesuit college and parish church. You can see some parts of the former city wall, and you can take a royal road from Gniezno to Poznan, just to follow the steps of the first Polish kings. That sounds like a fascinating opportunity to see Polish history. Also, Krakow is a historic capital of Poland, I think. What would you recommend about Krakow, Esther? Krakow, you definitely have to see the Wawel Cathedral and the Castle Hill and to learn about that part of Polish history from the Jagiellonian era, so from the 14th century. And that time, Krakow was one of the most important um, cities in Europe concerning education because that was the second university in Central Europe established by the Jagiellonians in Krakow. I find Krakow to be sort of the new Prague. For a lot of uh, beginners in Eastern Europe, they go to Prague and they love it. Now what do I do next? And if you don't want to be disappointed from after Prague, be sure to check out Krakow. Cameron, if you could talk just for a sec about Krakow, talk about the, the Jewish dimension of Krakow and also side-tripping to a salt mine and to a concentration camp. There's so much in and around Krakow. There is so much in Krakow. Before I get to that, I'll mention Krakow also has one of the finest squares I've seen anywhere mm-hmm. in Europe. Speaking of Poznan, Poznan also has a beautiful main square. I think Poland seems to specialize in it, but, mm. but Poznan is a very charming city. In, oh, in and Britain. by the way, on those main squares, a highlight for my Polish visit was simply sitting in a relatively expensive cafe on that square, having a nice drink, giving some money to some gypsy musicians and let them perform for you, put a flower on your table and just enjoy it. It's just savor the moment to be on that great square. The nice thing about Poland is it's really affordable, so you can kind of go to high-rent places and, and do it affordably. Exactly. Uh, speaking of that Jewish heritage, it's all over Poland, of course, but uh, Krakow was one of the centers of the Jewish population in Poland before World War II. And the neighborhood that was always traditionally the Polish neighborhood called Kazimierz, um, it was probably best known to most Americans because that's the neighborhood featured in the movie Schindler's List, which was based on real events that happened in this part of Krakow. The German industrialist Oskar Schindler, who saved his Jewish workers from the Holocaust, um, and what's interesting is during the communist period, that part of the the Polish story kind of got lost. This just Jewish strand was sort of uh, brushed under the rug by the by the Soviet regime. But now there's been this renaissance there. So this neighborhood of Kazimierz is just loaded with Jewish-themed hotels and restaurants. Several synagogues are opening up. And you can hear music, klezmer. You can hear exactly traditional Polish-Jewish klezmer music every night, uh, several restaurants around this, this district. Uh, it's also becoming the nightlife center yeah. of, of Krakow. So there's lots of fun little bars and, and nightclubs as well. And then just outside of town, you can go out to uh, Velichka Salt Mine, uh, which is this fascinating medieval salt mine where you basically the miners who were trapped underground for weeks and months at a time got bored, started carving sculptures out of the salt. So there's these giant caverns and, and carvings made of salt. That's just a half hour outside of Krakow. It's um, one of the most amazing sites I've ever seen was that salt mine outside of Krakow. You got to do that. And of course, it's almost a pilgrimage when you go to Poland, considering how they suffered under Nazism to check out Auschwitz. Yeah, Auschwitz Concentration Camp uh, Memorial, which is just an hour and a half or so from Krakow in the countryside. Uh, Very powerful, very poignant. It's been turned into a really uh, thought-provoking museum. And just to to be in this place and and see where these things happen is really, really moving. And, you know, standing on the, the lookout tower at the entryway and looking out over this vast factory of work, camp, and death, and you you can't really conceptualize it until you go there. And then you can see how crowded those barracks were and how far they spread and how they really did all of their engineering expertise to mass-produce death. Yeah, it's very, very powerful to, to stand on this place. And you're right, just to get the scope of it, you can hear numbers all the time, but when you stand and look across and the this train giant field of, of chimneys where all these barracks used to stand, wow. it's, it's very poignant. Esther, when you take a group to Auschwitz, how do you prepare the group and what is the powerful moment for them when you take them to this my vote for the most powerful experience of a concentration camp in Europe. I always tell them before they enter the camp that any reaction is normal. It's okay if you're upset. It's okay if you burst in tears. It's okay if you're angry. And it's impossible that you have uh, no feelings, no reactions at all. But don't feel, don't feel bad. Don't feel um, frustrated, whatever comes out, because you don't know until you stand there, as both of you said so. So any reaction is normal. So I prepare them that it's okay to get very emotional, even to cry. I had adult men coming out crying from the tours, especially when they see the children's shoes or when they see the human hair and when they hear all the stories and see the numbers, actually. Germany does, I think, a very honest and heroic job Mm -hmm. of showing concentration camps in Germany, Dachau and so on. But when you go to Poland, it is displayed by the victims rather than the perpetrators. And it is done in a very kind of subtle but powerful way. I mean, they leave the room filled with people's eyeglasses and a room filled with little children's shoes and a room filled with human hair, a room filled with uh, false limbs. 
it's almost a responsibility when we think of the wish of the victims of the Holocaust that we never forget. One effective way never to forget is to make a personal pilgrimage to a place like Auschwitz. And I always tell them that I think this is something you should see once in your life. Once is probably enough, but, but once you should be there, just to understand it. I agree completely. We have an email from Joseph in Indianapolis, Indiana, and Joseph writes, I have family that comes from Poland and went through Auschwitz during World War II. He says, I heard there's a, supposed to be a photo of those that were in Auschwitz on the walls. I was wondering, how do you find a specific person so you can show respects to that person if you happen to be going to Auschwitz? That's a great question. And, and as you mentioned, Rick, the, most of these concentration camp memorials are run by really conscientious organizations, usually made up of survivors and victims, families, and so forth. And uh, documentation is the key. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to make sure that there's a record of everything that happened for a variety of reasons, partly to ensure that this sort of thing uh, can never happen again. In Auschwitz, there is a hall, for example, where there's just dozens, maybe hundreds of photographs of inmates, their mugshot that was snapped as they arrived at the camp. I think most of these uh, different concentration camp memorials do have archives that you can search. I would contact the camp directly. I think the website's just auschwitz.pl mm -hmm. uh, for Poland. Go to the website, and there's probably a form there where you can contact them and see what kind of information you can get from their archive. And we should remember, concentration camps are kind of geared up to accept people who really have a, a connection to that place through lost loved ones and so on, pilgrims. And they're set up to accept school groups and tourists that are going there to learn exactly what happened and so on. Uh, Pat is still on the line with us from Elkton, Minnesota. Pat, we just can't stop talking about Poland. I hope you've been getting some good ideas there. Yes, I am. It's very interesting. I was wondering about uh, renting a house in Krakow instead of being in a motel all the time, and, and if that was feasible to stay there and do day trips to Poznan and to Częstochowa and other places around Pat, that's a great idea. I've actually done that uh, with my whole extended family. My, my mother's uh, father was Polish, and I took my whole extended family. We rented an apartment for a week uh, that was just a couple blocks off the main square right there in Krakow. It can be a really affordable way to go. Krakow is also a great location. If I picked one home base in Poland to see a cross-section of what the country has to offer and a beautiful city in itself, uh, Krakow is the place. And that's the great idea from a home base point of view. That you're coming back to a place with wonderful, comfortable nightlife, whether in the in the old center or out in uh, Kazimierz. Yep. Great restaurants, great nightlife, sitting out on that square after dark, sipping a drink, mm. uh, one of the best experiences in Europe. Sign me up. Pat, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. Yeah. We're getting a taste of Poland today on Travel with Rick Steves with Cameron Hewitt and Esther Bokros. Cameron, I know you're um, enthusiastic about Gdansk. Uh, tell us about this, what you consider, I think, a, like an undiscovered gem on the Baltic coast. Boy, I think of all the all the places I've been in Europe that I'd call undiscovered gems, the city of Gdansk, the Polish word is Gdansk. It's better known by the uh, German name Danzig. That's probably how a lot of people know it. But I think there's few places in Europe that can match it in terms of it's just undiscovered gem qualities. Just It's up on the northern coast of Poland, right on the uh, the Baltic coast there. It's an incredibly historic place. It's got a just absolutely beautiful old town like a lot of places in Poland, destroyed in World War II, but it's just been painstakingly restored. And the main drag of Gdansk is one of the most beautiful, architecturally, colorfully beautiful places I've been anywhere in Europe. Now, it has a Hanseatic heritage. What does that mean historically, and then what does that mean from a sightseeing point of view? It's one of those um, old northern European trading cities, like, like Amsterdam Lubeck or Lubeck, Riga or Bergen. Uh, a lot of those Baltic cities um, have those really ornate, skinny, colorful building, a uh, very rich, very wealthy shipbuilding and, and shipping heritage. Uh, so there was a lot of money flowing through the city back in the 16th, 17th, 18th And is this part of this royal way, this, this stretch you're talking about, which is yeah. great mansions of, of old big-time merchants? Like in Amsterdam, you see a lot of those. Exactly. It's in Gdansk, there's this beautiful royal way with these skinny but ornate mansions lining this main drag. And a lot of us know Gdansk because of uh, Lech Walesa and the Solidarity. Gdansk was the, the crucible of Solidarity, this very successful trade union, 1980 shipyard workers in Gdansk, uh, led by Lech Walesa, or Lech Walesa as we call them in English, rose up, had an 18-day protest where they refused to come out of the shipyard gates. Uh, it was very moving. And you can actually go to these places when you go to Gdansk. It's about a 15-minute walk from the old town. You can walk up to this gate and imagine Lech Wałęsa and the rest of the protesters were on one side, and their families would come up to the area that you're walking up to. They'd have to pass food through the gate to their relatives. And there was this very tense standoff, because just 10 years earlier, protesters in that same spot had been gunned down by the Soviet regime. 
And this time there was a lot of tension about whether they'd get away with this protest, wow. with this strike. Good very, odds. very powerful stuff. And there, today, the beautiful, towering monument to the whole solidarity. There's a, there's a lot of great sites. There's a monument to that, that 1970 massacre right by this gate where this 1980 protest happened. And there's a fantastic museum just a few steps away that just tells the whole story. Hey, Cameron and Esther, it's been great talking about Poland with you. Let's just wrap up with, as a tour guide, both of you have been tour guides in Poland. Uh, what is the, the great joy you've had in one little moment of taking groups to a site in Poland? We'll start with Cameron. Uh, one thing I always enjoy is we usually come in from Auschwitz. We're coming in from Czech Republic, and we've spent the day at Auschwitz. People are pretty wiped out. It's a very emotionally draining experience. We check into our hotel, and it's time to go to dinner. So strategically, we worked it out that the restaurant was on the opposite end of the old town from the hotel. So I'd gather the group in the lobby. We'd walk slowly through the old town. People would gradually realize what a beautiful town this is. Krakow. In Krakow, yes. And then suddenly we'd step out onto this gorgeous main market square, I think one of the most beautiful squares anywhere in Europe. And you could just feel this sort of collective relief of people. They've been through this kind of tasking experience, and now here they are in this absolutely gorgeous place. Um, it's it's always really satisfying for me. Boy, you know, talk about powerful. You know, in Poland, you learn life can be really tough, and life goes on. It's a Absolutely. Beautiful thing. Esther, what's a rewarding experience you have as a tour guide in Poland? A rewarding experience is actually I just I would like just to connect to Cameron that it's a very spiritual day to travel from Warsaw to Krakow. Uh, first, including Częstochowa, this big monastery, because that's a very different spiritual experience, and then Auschwitz. Oh. as a second spiritual experience, and then arrive to Krakow, and as you say, that just to have a relief in this really Krakow. gemstone. Yes. Krakow. Krakow is, is really the happy ending of all Absolutely. that history. Absolutely. But you definitely have to have a spiritual day in Poland. Beautiful. So, Cameron, when we want to meet all these beautiful Polish people in our travels, what's a good word to know? Dzień dobry. Good day, hello. It's a quick way to break the ice. Dzień dobry. And Esther, what else should we know how to say? And of course, the most important word in any language is to say thank you, which is dziękuję. 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 To both of you, dziękuję. Dziękuję. Nie mam za co. Not at all. It's a really big year for opera, and we'll celebrate the bicentennials of Wagner and Verdi with Fred Plotkin next on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. This year, history and music conspire to bring us two big birthdays of artists whose music didn't just entertain, it helped make history. Richard Wagner was born May 22, 1813, in Leipzig, Germany, just a few months before a multinational coalition drove Napoleon back to France in the Battle of Leipzig. On October 10th of that same year, Giuseppe Verdi was born in a village in the Parma region of the Kingdom of Italy. Our favorite authority on classical music, Fred Plotkin, joins us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how Wagner and Verdi became such important figures in the development of classical music and opera. They also helped to shape the national identities of 19th century Italy and Germany. And we'll also look at some of the venues where you can celebrate these musical legends this year. Well, it's remarkable that the two titans of opera, Verdi and Wagner, were born only five months apart in the same year in 1813. They led parallel lives and will be celebrating them both throughout the year, both in Europe and North America and the whole world. And what's interesting for me, Fred, is that their careers are sort of um, 
emblematic of what romanticism and nationalism and all that excitement going on in the late 19th century in Europe was all about. What's your take on romanticism and nationalism and how the art and the music intersects with the struggles for freedom and national independence? What we forget about 19th century Europe is that while England and France were nations and Austria was a big nation and empire, Germany and Italy were not yet countries. They were a confederation of little republics, of lands, as they were called in Germany, and they were really trying to find their identity. Their identities were described to them in the music of Wagner in Germany and the music of Verdi in Italy. Verdi went so far as to write operas that promoted rebellion, especially Nabucco in 1842, that called for the Italian peoples to throw out foreign occupiers, namely Austria and France. So if Verdi was actually calling for insurrection, that would have been <laughs> pretty dangerous in its day, wouldn't it? It was actually treasonable. Yeah. And Verdi often had to leave the country, or I should say the peninsula of Italy. He spent a fair amount of time in France. And in addition, Wagner had to escape Germany in 1849. He was part of the insurrection in Dresden in May of 1849. There was a warrant for his arrest, and he got out of the country and went to Switzerland, to Zurich, where he spent 11 years in exile from Germany. Now, this is really a, really an amazing thought that the two greatest opera composers, primarily, they were not revolutionaries or statesmen or, or politicians, they were composers, yet they were both really tied up with their revolutionary struggles as German-speaking people tried to weld together modern Germany, which happened around 1870, and all the Italian-speaking people had that notion that we Italian-speaking people should have one country. And, and again, that didn't come until 1870 either, and both of them were, would have been, what, 57 years old when their countries were finally united. Yes, but I think it's fair to say that Wagner at least was a revolutionary, uh, we think of him now through the prism of Nazism. He died 50 years before Hitler came to power. He was very left-wing. He was rather unconventional. He was a socialist in some ways. He was a vegetarian. He was a Buddhist for a long time. His thinking was very unconventional, and it's very hard to pigeonhole Wagner. Similarly with Verdi, who to me is the greater man, was a man of such principle and such strength that he was willing to stare down censors, to be an atheist or at least an agnostic in the religious environment of Italy. He did battle with the Vatican all the time about presumed morality, things that we talk about mm. today <laughs> and are still confrontational today. He was after in the 1840s and 50s, so they both were revolutionaries, who happened to be two of the greatest composers of all time. I love this notion, or, or I'm just stirred and inspired by this notion that in the 1860s, when artists and intellectuals and uh, philosophers were just so enthusiastic about putting together a united Italy, you couldn't even wave the Italian colors, you know, and people had these secret ways to show their patriotism. And I just, I just am so inspired by this notion that at an opera in Italy, when the Verdi aria would be playing, people would, would stand on their seats and sing it together as if singing their national anthem. And even, even the name Verdi was like a national slogan, wasn't it? Well, in fact, when Italians would cry Viva Verdi in that time, the king, because they wanted to form a constitutional monarchy under the royal family in Turin, was Vittorio Emanuele, V.E., and he would have been Vittorio Emanuele Re d'Italia, V-E-R-D-I, Victor Emmanuel, King of Italy. So in shouting Viva Verdi, what the Italians were also saying was, long live the constitutional monarchy that we're trying to create. Verdi, with Nabucco in 1842, wrote what is the unofficial national anthem of Italy, Va Pensiero, also known as the Chorus of the Hebrew Slaves, in which they sang of their dreams of freedom. These were This was a scene from the Bible, but the Italians came to understand that they were just like the Jews. And I, as a Jewish New Yorker who loves Italy, came to realize that the Italians are really just Jews who eat prosciutto. <laughs> well, and they had their codes, just like uh, Jews did throughout the ages of to course. survive. 
And when you think that the big dynasties or the big powers of the time, what the Habsburgs and, and the French, they didn't want a united Italy. That was just not in their playbook. Well, let's take Verdi's Rigoletto, written in 1851 and premiered in Venice. What that's about is the desire of a man to kill the head of state. And had the music not been so extraordinary, La Donna Mobile and everything else, chances are it would have been entirely suppressed. Hmm. But Verdi dealt with censors for his entire life, even after Italy became a republic. And he did it boldly. He didn't wimp out and dance around it, but he just mobilized public sentiment and the truth and uh, was quite a, quite a courageous character, it sounds like. He was, I mean, he's my hero. Wagner is fascinating, and I love studying Wagner. But Verdi is really, he's a man of, of such greatness who also is a great composer. Fred, I've been to the beautiful La Scaletta Museum at the Opera House in Milano, and there are, um, you know, lots and lots of uh, display cases about the great Italian opera composers, and I've learned about Verdi there. Where would you recommend to travel to get a sense and an appreciation of Verdi? Verdi was born in what is now called the province of Parma, in a town called Roncole, which basically is his birth house and a church and a gas station. The gas station was not there in his time. The church is where the harmonium is that he went as a five-year-old and began to figure out chords. And you can go there and you can see that harmonium, but you can also see the humble little house where he was born. They were not rich. What is a harmonium now for our... Harmonium is sort of like a toy organ in a way. Right. And uh, in addition, nearby is what's called Villa Sant'Agata, which was his farm. Verdi, we think of him as living in Milan. He actually lived on a farm, and he was a farmer, and he raised animals and crops, and he made prosciutto. He was, in fact, an excellent pork butcher. And when he had to persuade someone of something, he would send them pork with a letter <laughs> and a handwritten recipe, and inevitably he got his way. So go there as well. The city of Parma adores Verdi. The Teatro Reggio is where a lot of the celebrations will be in October 2013, an entire month of Verdi operas. And, of course, Milan and La Scala. He died in Milan. He's buried in Milan in a building that he built, a retirement home for old musicians. Verdi was so good that he understand that his operas were only as good as the choruses, the orchestra members, and the small players who managed to perform in his opera, so he built a home for them to live in out for the rest of their years. That's greatness. Fred Plotkin's helping us celebrate the bicentennials of opera giants Giuseppe Verdi and Richard Wagner today on Travel with Rick Steves. Fred is the author of Opera 101 and Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. We have a link to Fred's many opera blog entries in this week's program details on our website. And you'll find that in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Steve's on the line in Albany, Oregon. Steve, thanks for your call. Hi. Uh, my wife and I are big fans of yours. You know, you don't have to go to, to Europe to see great Wagner. There's a great cycle in, not very far from you in Seattle, and I have a ticket to see that this August, which I'm really excited about. I would imagine, uh, Fred, there's lots of Wagner and Verdi sort of festivities and concerts and so on in Europe. Would the same be true in the United States? Certainly is. The Metropolitan Opera is doing a ring cycle, and they're doing three of them. And then, as the caller said, the Seattle Opera, which has one of the greatest Wagner traditions in America, is doing its last one under its great general manager, Spate Jenkins, who retires this year. It is a great destination for Wagner lovers, not only from the Pacific Northwest. Do you think we're going to see more Wagner or more Verdi in the coming year in the United States because of these anniversaries? Uh, definitely more Verdi because Wagner operas are longer, they're expensive to produce, and they have big, big casts, or I should say big, big choruses. Whereas Verdi operas, a lot of them are two and a half to three hours, and everyone loves them. So I think that will bring them around more. A little more popular, yeah. Also, um, we're all talking about uh, Verdi and uh, Wagner, but it's the 100th anniversary of the birth of Benjamin Britten. Yes, Benjamin Britten is England's greatest opera composer. He was born in 1913, November 22nd, 
and we could divide his life between Great Britain and the United States. A lot of his formative time was spent in New York City in the 1930s and early 1940s. He lived in Brooklyn in a rather unusual household that had Gypsy Rose Lee, W.H. Auden, and many colorful people coming in and out of that household. Carson McCullers was another. And they were very bohemian. His boyfriend, who became his partner in life, Peter Pears, lived there too. He was a tenor. And Britain wrote operas for the voice of Peter Pears. And it's an interesting relationship in that basically all of the Britain operas have great tenor parts for a dramatic tenor which is what Peter Pears huh. was. Well, that would make sense. Steve, in, in Oregon, uh, are you a fan of uh, Benjamin Britten also? Yes, I am, and I was wondering. I, I mean, I don't think you can see those operas very easily in the U.S. I think you pretty much have to go to Great Britain, don't you? Actually not. The L.A. Opera under James Conlon has been doing all of the Britten operas. Oh, the right. Met will do A Midsummer Night's Dream next November, and on November 22nd at Carnegie Hall, the St. Louis Symphony will be doing Peter Grimes, probably his masterpiece, with Anthony Dean Griffey, an American tenor who is probably the Peter Pears of today. He's perfect for the music of Benjamin Britten. Wow. Well, that would be great to see. Steve, thanks for your call. Thank you. Fred, you know, if Benjamin Britten uh, was born one year later, he'd probably get a little more attention, but he's kind of overshadowed by the uh, anniversaries of Wagner and Verdi. By the two giants. But for people traveling to Great Britain, there's something called the Aldeburgh Festival, A-L-D-E-B-U-R-G-H, we might say Aldeburgh. And it's in East Anglia, and it's a very atmospheric place on the sea. And a lot of Britain's music evokes the sea, fishermen, seagulls, all of that. And when you go to Aldebra, you discover how place can influence a composer. Few composers of any kind, maybe just Bizet with Carmen, managed to so completely describe a place as did Benjamin Britten in Aldebra. So it's very special to go there and hear his music where he wrote it. Just to finish off the anniversary discussions, next year, in 2014, is a big anniversary for Richard Strauss. Another great German composer who spent a lot of time in Austria. The one thing to know about him, he founded the Salzburg Festival with a couple of colleagues, one of the greatest music festivals in the world. He wrote De Rosenkavalier. He wrote Elektra, which to me is one of the greatest of all operas. He wrote Zalame. The Vienna State Opera is coming to New York City to Carnegie Hall, and we'll do Zalame in February of two. I'm sorry, March first, two thousand and fourteen. The Metropolitan Opera is doing three Strauss operas next year. All over the world, we're going to see Richard Strauss. Mm. He wrote gorgeous songs in addition to being an opera composer, and fantastic symphonic music. You know the music from two thousand and one, Thus Spake Zarathustra. That is Richard Strauss. He was really the master of the tone poem, which is a symphony that's very descriptive of place. He wrote one about Italy. He wrote one about the Alps. Fantastic. So we can stay tuned for him, especially in 2014, when uh, we have the 150th anniversary of his birth. And Fred, let's just wrap it up when we're thinking, planning our trips in the coming year, and we're music lovers. Just in a, in a brief sort of survey, a review where should we go and what should we know about so we can take full advantage of this festive year with the anniversaries of Verdi and Wagner? Well, for Wagner, the time is May. He was born May 22nd. In Dresden, May 21st is a great gala at the opera house there, the Semper Opera. On May 22nd, he was born in Leipzig and all the celebrations will be there. Leipzig is doing all of his early operas that are seldom seen, and there'll be many exhibitions as well. So don't miss Leipzig. Bayreuth, where he's buried, is doing a big concert on May 22nd, and then has a festival in August of many of Wagner's operas. He also lived in Zurich, as I mentioned, and in Lucerne, and those cities are doing special festivals too. For Verdi, um, throughout the year really, but especially in Parma, in the entire month of October, there will be different Verdi operas and concerts every night. La Scala is doing a production of Verdi's Don Carlo, my favorite Verdi opera, starting October 10th. 
Not much in the United States, I'm afraid to say. Okay, and I got to mention those places you mentioned uh, for Wagner, Leipzig, Dresden, Zurich, Lucerne, all beautiful cities in their own right, and especially interesting when you when you splice in your passion for Wagner's music. Yes, indeed. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Fred Plutkin, the author of Opera 101. Claudia in Durham, North Carolina, emailed us, and she said, Wagner is still controversial, especially since he was known to have been Hitler's favorite composer. Not only Jewish people are aware of this, uh, therefore, why celebrate Richard Wagner? Wagner, as I mentioned before, died 50 years before Hitler came to power. And the, the point here is that Wagner was a great, one of the greatest creative artists. His works are about things much more universal than the fact that he was a horrid anti-Semite. If we were to eliminate all the creative artists of the 19th century in Europe who were anti-Semites, we're basically left with Verdi. Chopin was an anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. We tend not to think of him, maybe because Hitler didn't like Chopin. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, those were the times. And if we factor that in, we're missing out of what 19th century culture is, not politics and prejudice. Going all the way back to Monteverdi in 1607 and through Mozart and Handel, but especially Mozart, these guys reflected their times and pushed their times. Mm-hmm. Mozart wrote operas that basically helped foster the French Revolution and therefore the revolutions around Europe. We cannot ever celebrate great opera from politics and government. It's like the greatest novels are about much more than he loves her or he loves him or she loves her or she loves him. It doesn't matter. But these are big, complex stories. They're great canvases. And the music in opera is always about something. The music is a narrative. It's not the words that dominate in opera. It should always be the music. Fred Potkin, author of Opera 101, it is always a delight to talk with you about culture and travel and Europe, food and music. Thanks a lot, Fred. Thank you, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our friends at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help today. There's more online at ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Eastern Europe and every other corner of the continent. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.